if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, we're going to camp out in three different chapters today, but you'll be glad to know they are right there, Matthew 8, 9, and 10. No, we're not going to cover every single verse in, the, in those texts, of course not, because you would walk out on me halfway through, and I would probably walk out on myself. But that's where we're going to be. And this morning I'm going to do that thing that sometimes I do that just makes you a little bit mad, a little bit frustrated. But I was having a conversation yesterday with someone and uh, we were talking about um, just people's general knowledge of the Scriptures. So today I'm just going to be grumpy and I'm going to make you turn. If you've got it on your phone, fine. If you've got it in your hand in a Bible, that's fine. But I think it would be helpful for, I don't know, I really... Just to tell you, I'm a little torn in my heart. I don't want to put the Scripture on the screen anymore. I just really don't. I want you to have your Bibles and you to pay attention. And I, don't, I want you to get used to where things are and how to find stuff. And remember some of you that have been around the church for a while? Remember sword drills? Anybody, anybody in the house remember sword drills? You sit up there on the stage and then they would call out a text and you'd be flipping your way through. I remember when I first started preaching and I would do what I just did, I would say, please grab your Bibles and turn to, and all across the congregation I would hear paper. The glorious 90s. I would hear paper. I would love to hear that again. But more importantly, I want, you to, I want to start helping you just kind of feed yourself a little bit. Know where, do you know where your Bible is? I'm not, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. So we're going to camp out. And one person recently told me when we, I messed up the slides somehow and we had to go without them. The individual came to me after church and said, Pastor, I paid attention more this morning because it wasn't in the screen. And I was like, I really had to focus. So I don't know. You, you, you Just pray for me because I, I want you to bring these. You remember these things? I, <laughs> I want you to bring these things to church with you. And maybe we should have more around here and maybe get some more in your hands if you, if you don't have one. Maybe we'll make that change. But enough of that. Have you noticed the increase, increasing trend to label everything the greatest or the worst? It's like everything wants to be polarized. Everything from sports to politics to, to maybe events in your own home, in your own life. Well, that is, this is the worst day or this is the best day or this is the worst vacation or this is the best vacation. I'm a pastor and yes, last week I was on vacation and lo and behold, I found myself at a funeral. And I thought, isn't it like a pastor to find himself at a funeral? No, I wasn't in charge, but I knew some people there, friends of my mother-in-law's lifelong friends. It was kind of fun. Um, in, a, in a comforting way for me to be there and our family to be there with my mother-in-law as she had to go to a funeral of a, of a family friend who had watched um, Susan grow up and all the rest of the big family kind of connection. you know. But we're so quick to want to measure things and put things in this kind of order where this one's better than that one or this one's worse than that one. Or, and we do that when we compare kind of notes with people when we say, oh, you know, I, I injured myself. Oh, well, I injured myself too. And then it's like all often you want to see my scars and you've got all this kind of thing going on, but we're, we're always ranking things. And then there's something within that this is the greatest or this is the wor- worst that kind of gives people this sense of superiority that if they were at the biggest event or if they were at the worst catastrophe or they were at this moment or they know this person. And it's about this kind of sense of lording over or feeling more significant than. And I think that that finds itself in our responses to Jesus. 
In fact, in these three chapters in the Bible, Jesus very plainly tells of His very soon coming betrayal, death, and resurrection. Because as we start to push towards Easter, I want to talk to you about how you're responding to Jesus right now today. Sometimes Easter and Christmas, those become history lessons of retelling a story and just kind of feeling good about being in the story, right? Who doesn't like to hear old stories? Sometimes um, I go on YouTube and I watch old baseball games, baseball games perhaps that I was there or perhaps that I saw, and it's just that familiar Vin Scully voice and that familiar kind of older players when I was a kid, and you just kind of feel kind of like you sit in the story. And I think sometimes with Easter and Christmas, we kind of get comfortable feeling we're in the story this Easter time, and yes, I know we're talking about the death of Jesus, but then Jesus resurrects and the story ends wonderful, and we're just kind of comfortable in the story. That's fine, and I'm glad you find comfort in the story. But what I want to ask you today is, where are you in your story with Jesus? And how are you currently responding to the work of Jesus that He began on the cross and as He continues today. You know that Jesus' work on the cross was not a one-time event. wasn't a set it and forget it. It wasn't a push the button and move on. It was the beginning of a history-changing, world-changing movement. It was the start of something. It was the start of the grand renewal project of all creation. And that is a very big statement, but it's one that we find ourselves living in. You know that all throughout the Scriptures, when you hear that phrase, the last days, the last days started with Jesus' ascension shortly after His death, resurrection, ascension, the last days begun. That last days revolution, that last days renewal, restoration, that last days, some people call it the age of grace. Well, that's where we find ourselves continuing the work that Jesus began on the cross. So I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself a question and maybe even more importantly, ask Jesus a question this morning. How are you responding to his current work in your life that he began and that is made possible by the work that he did during this time of season that we celebrate? So this morning, this one overall thought as we start this series responding to Jesus, how the death and resurrection shapes our response to Jesus' authority. I want to talk to you about this. Respond to Jesus' death and resurrection with self-denying servitude. I think we need to turn the tide. Instead of saying we're the best, we're the greatest, we're the most significant, or perhaps you feel just the opposite about yourself today. Perhaps you're showing up at church and you're going, I'm the worst, and I've made the biggest mistakes, and I'm the most horrible person in the neighborhood. I don't know where you fall in that. Most likely you fall somewhere in between. Because in a society that always wants to put something as the best or the worst, the majority of us are finding ourselves squarely in the middle of the mess where you're pretty good at some things and you've grown up in some areas and you do some things very, very well. But perhaps there's some other things that you would look today and say, perhaps I'm not responding to Jesus very well or appropriately in this area of my life. Maybe you're doing well everywhere except for work. Or maybe you're doing very well everywhere besides the time when you go put gas in your car and then you just absolutely lose it. And you put a little sticker. I'm talking about that sticker. It's like, I don't know. And I can't joke too much today because somebody might come up and slap me. Okay, I had to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I had to say it. I, I, I tried not to. 
Um, probably shouldn't have, and I might get slapped for that. Who knows? Um, Jesus says, though, turn the other cheek, right? Okay, but if I'm still standing after you hit me on the other one, I'm coming at you. So <laughs> if you're going to slap me, you got two shots. <laughs> I'm probably going to be on the floor after the first one, but anyway, I, I really digress. And no, that perhaps was not the best moment on television, nor the worst. But it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. So how are you responding to Jesus right now with what he's doing in your life? I had a little thing happen to me this morning that I had to ask that question. Last night I had a conversation with a friend, and I felt like my response was really like good, right? between Jesus and my life context and him, I thought my response was pretty good. And then this morning, as I was seeking the Lord in prayer about our service today, I just felt unsettled. Like, I had responded well yesterday, but this morning, not, not so much. And so, during worship, me and the Lord were kind of working that out because I want to properly respond to everything that Jesus is doing in my life because of his authority in my life. And notice how the story starts to unfold. I want to talk to you about a few things, a few reasons why our response to Jesus, death and resurrection, with self-denying servitude is important. The first reason it is important is that it is soul-saving. If I properly respond to the authority of Jesus as displayed on the cross, my soul will be saved. Let's look at the passage, first of all, in Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't have your Bibles this morning, just, just listen intently. You may do better than if it's on the screen. Starting in verse 27, we read this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to a village, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one of God. You're the one that all the prophets in the Old Testament kind of talk about. You're, you're that one. Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This he said plainly. <laughs> the beginning of verse 32 is interesting to me. This he said plainly. It's at this point in the text that I must pause and just kind of explain to you a little bit of something about your Bible. You understand that we're reading in the Gospel of Mark, meaning it was written by John Mark, also commonly known Mark. Mark was an interesting person because he wasn't at this event. He wasn't part of this scene. He wasn't part of the twelve. He was, he, was, he was at best not even born or very, very young at this time because he was a young man during the ministry of Paul the Apostle, a very young man who got homesick and returned back to his home. And then Barnabas was helping him and he restored him. And then Paul said he's become useful, so he brought him on. And, and Mark was kind of one of those young guys hanging around with Peter and with Luke and with Paul as they did ministry in the book of Acts. Now the person that was there was Peter. Peter was there, and traditionally we understand that Peter gave his information to Mark and Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. So a lot of this came directly from Peter. So Peter was there, Mark wasn't. Mark's writing about probably a good 25, 35 years after the fact. So if you think that through, 
you say to yourself, this was a time when they really didn't understand what was going on, but Peter, who messes everything up throughout the gospel accounts, always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying the wrong thing, when he told Mark what happened, now remember this 30-something years later, he said, you know, Jesus really explained it very plainly to us. We didn't understand. We didn't get it. When he was crucified, even though he did tell us plainly, when he, when he was arrested, we all went home. We all went and hid. We went back to our former ways of life. But really, Jesus did tell us plainly. Plainly. Now let's pick up the story. Starting with the rest of verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now remember what I said. Peter was there. This is the proof of that. But then Peter tells Mark and Mark writes it down. So at some point, somewhere, perhaps around a campfire or maybe on a journey, on a walk, Peter's having a conversation with Mark. And he says, could you believe that he told us plainly, but I took Jesus aside and rebuked him? I, of all people, took Jesus aside and said, no, you can't do that. What a conversation that must have been. Mark's eyes would have been this big. What do you mean you're telling Jesus that you couldn't do that? Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, this is Jesus, he hears this from Peter, he turns and looks at his disciples and, pe and rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, your response to me is not anywhere near what God would have your response to be. Your response is based upon your thinking on the physical temporal kind of way. You're thinking like a normal human being when I want you to be responding to me with the thoughts of God and the perspective of God. Well, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? And then he calls the crowd to himself. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of the Father with the holy angels. Whew. That's a heavy load. So Peter is told plainly, we're headed toward Jerusalem. That's where we're going. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm telling you this plainly. Peter's like, no way, no way. Uh-uh, we're not doing that. We need to do things my way. And his response is based upon his own human nature, not the work of God in his life. So I want to ask you a question. As God works in your life, however he's leading you, however he's working in your life, are you responding with what comes naturally to your own thoughts based upon your own desires, based upon your own preconceived notions of what God should do or shouldn't do? Are you disappointed with God because He's not doing what you think He should do? Or are you surrendering to the authority of God and admitting that sometimes life is very uncomfortable, that sometimes life involves suffering, sometimes life revolves sacrifice, and you are responding with obedience that you are responding with self-denying servitude. That you're saying, I will deny what naturally comes to me, what I want, what I think should happen, what my goals are, my desires are, 
and you will realize that in the relationship between you and God, you're not the authority, He is. You're not the one setting the course or the direction of your life, but He is. And are you currently responding with self-sacrificing servitude? Because it is soul-saving. might not be money-saving. <laughs> it's going to be soul-saving. As the journey, begin, journey continues and they continue their course towards Jerusalem, we learn that surrendering to Jesus in this way and responding to Jesus in self-denying servitude, we also notice that it's kind of like a child. And that's a good thing. This is when childish behavior is amazing. This is when childish behavior is called for. This is when childish behavior is the most mature thing that we could do. Notice the passage, next chapter, Mark chapter 9, beginning again with verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. Same thing, same plain statement. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. That's what adults do. Kids will ask you anything. As we were on vacation this last week, I'm driving in a car, middle of Oklahoma, flat as can be. You can see forever. And as my brother-in-law says, it's freedom as far as the eye can see. Because he always makes fun of California. Okay, fine. My other brother-in-law sitting right next to me. He happens to live in Southern California as well. And we were talking about being grandfathers. And he has 15 of them. And he said, one of my grand, we were drinking coffee, by the way. And he said, well, shocker, right? Me drinking coffee. But anyway, so we're driving along. And he says, one of my grandkids came up the other day and says, oompa, that's what they call him. He says, oompa, why are your teeth yellow? Because <laughs> oh, I drink too much coffee. Oh. See, kid, you would never do that. You, you would never show up at your friend's house. Do why are your teeth yellow? Seeing one little kid come up, this is, I don't know if it was here at other church, but if it was here, forgive me, I won't mention names, but I heard, I saw one little grandkid come up to their grandfather and poke him in the stomach and go, why are you fat? <laughs> and it was in front of everybody. Kids will ask anything. Adults, they get confused and don't ask. Too much pride. Not going to admit that I don't know. I'm not going to admit that I'm confused. I'm just going to withdraw. Stay silent. Hmm. Sometimes I perhaps say things from the pulpit and they confuse you. <laughs> and you don't come and ask. You just go to lunch with, I didn't get it. Why did the pastor say that? That was ridiculous. He shouldn't have had that Will Smith joke. He shouldn't have said that. We should slap him. Uh, I don't know. One of the good things about having such a small congregation is you, I'm right here. <laughs> you have my phone number. One of you almost ran me over in the middle of the street this week in the car, so that was my fault. I shouldn't have been sweeping so far into the middle of the street. Sorry, I wanted to clean, I wanted to clean up my mess. But you know where I live. You have my cell phone number on the business cards. I'm right here. Act like a child and ask questions. Ask like, act like a child and seek information. Even if it's, Pastor, why did you 
and it sounds pretty silly sometimes. So the text goes on. It says, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? What were you guys talking about back there? Uh, but they kept silent. <laughs> For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Isn't that so much like an adult? I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to try to learn, but I'm going to tell everybody how great I am. I'm going to remain in my ignorance and tell you that I'm great. That's an adult. (laughs) And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone must be first, he must be last of all. And a servant of all. And he took a child. And he put him in the midst of them and taking him In his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So when they're fighting and they're not asking the questions that they should be, but they're just too busy talking about who's the greatest, I'm the best apostle, no, I'm the best, I'm the one, did you see the way he, I mean, I'm one of the three, he took me over here, he took us over there, he's, I brought, I washed his sandals, well, I washed his feet. I, I, I did his laundry. We have all of these things of why we perhaps might be the greatest. And Jesus simply takes a child and he, why don't we just be like this? The story continues next chapter, chapter 10. Another reason we find in this chapter of why we should respond to the work of Jesus as he began on the cross with self-denying servitude. The reason is this, because that is in reality true greatness. We all know this intuitively. You don't need to be a Jesus follower or a Bible believer to understand that sacrifice is is admirable. You don't need to. We see it all around us. When the worst of the worst happens and people step into that situation, they're they're the heroes, right? They're the ones that come to our rescue when we're hurting. They're the ones that fix major problems. They're the ones that enter buildings when everybody else is going out. They're the ones that gave beyond their means. They're the ones that sacrificed oftentimes their very lives so that the rest of us can have freedom. We know this intuitively. Again, starting with verse 32 in chapter 10. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. John tells us, because it's a longer story, Mark is more of a summary, gives us the high points. We learn from John that though James and John were called the sons of thunder. They were, they were 
really rough guys. They were the ones that when Jesus was, re- was rejected, they said, should we call down fire from heaven to just destroy this place? That's what they, these guys, they were so brutal in that way that their nicknames given to them by others were called the sons of thunder because that's who they were. That's what was their nature, rough kind of men. But these rough men sent their mom to ask them to do Jesus, ask them for Jesus to do them a favor. That if they knew that if, hey, if, if this thing is coming to a close, can we be the greatest ones? I mean, we were on the road arguing with them back there, but they're not listening to us, so can you just go ahead and make us the greatest because we really think we are? And at Jesus' moment as He's headed towards Jerusalem, they're ignoring everything that Jesus just told them. And when Jesus says He's about ready to experience the worst of the worst, they're worried about their status of being great. That was their response. And then Jesus kind of takes them to a place where they probably didn't realize they were going. And He said to them, verse 36, what do you want Me to do for you? And they said to Him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am, that I drink? In other words, are you able to live the life that I live? Are you able to suffer like I'm going to suffer? Or to be baptized with the baptism by which I am baptized? And they said to them, oh, we're able. (laughs) Isn't it so much like us? No, Jesus, I can do that. I I can take it. You you really want to be great? Yes, I want to be great. I want to be amazing. Are you sure? Yes, I can do it. You don't even know what you're asking, but can you? Yes, yes. We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized with, you will be baptized. In other words, you're going to die a martyr. You're going to die for your faith. You will be killed for your faith like I am, is what he tells them. Verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord over them. Right? So the rulers just controlled everybody. Everybody was their puppet. Everybody was in service to their own power and greed and authority. But it shall not be so among you. So Jesus says, hey, the leaders of this world are trying to control you, manipulate you. They want power. They are greedy. They are in it for themselves, but not in the church. Not among Jesus' followers. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So how are we responding? There's a lot of talk today about being the greatest and being the best. There's a lot lot of talk today about power and control and authority. A lot of it. Jesus says we are not to be doing that as His followers. And then there's one more reason while serving, responding to Jesus in this way is, is appropriate. And that too is found in Mark chapter 10. 
It is a recognition of our need for mercy. When you decide to serve and respond to Jesus with a heart of self-denial and a heart of servitude, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that you're not the greatest, that you don't deserve everything that you've been given, that you probably deserve less, and you respond with Jesus coming and saying that I love you. I'm here to restore you and everything else. And your response to that is, then I'll deny myself and serve you. And you'll cry out for mercy. Now remember, I told you that Peter was here. Peter gave the information to Mark, and then Mark put it all together. You read the other gospel accounts, especially what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three, they call them synoptic gospels because they follow the same pattern of writing, and they're very similar. And each one of them adds different details to the story. And each author constructed the way they put together the stories, what follows what, in accordance with their overall theme of their writing. Mark's overall theme for, the gospel, for his gospel writing was to portray, portray Jesus as a suffering servant. Matthew was talking about him being a king. And he talked about the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled all of these things about being a king and about being Lord. And he uses all of these links back to David. Well, Mark, he does what he does, and he puts the story together to show you that Jesus came to serve. And so as he put together these three different accounts in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he kind of finishes this with an example of how it should have been all along. And he tells them this account in starting in verse 46 of chapter 10. He says, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Notice the question. When the disciples, when the twelve specifically heard Jesus ask blind man Bartimaeus, What would you want me to do for you? It was the exact same question that Jesus had asked James and John. But James and John's response to the question of what do you want me to do for you was make me the greatest. Jesus asked the same question to blind man Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus' response is, have mercy. And Mark is sending us the message. The response to the question of what would you have me do for you begins with have mercy. It doesn't begin with, well, I'm the greatest and I deserve. Man, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I deserve for to be healed. I deserve to have my eyesight back. Because I'm really good. I'll be the best preacher among the twelve. These guys are arguing about themselves. They're the twelve greatest. I'll be the thirteenth. I'll be the best. I know thirteen's an unlucky, lucky, unlucky number, but I got that. I'm going to be the best. If you give me my eyesight back, I promise I'll be the best. That's what he said. He was begging for mercy. And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This moment became so impactful, so powerful, that what 
came about from this story with Bartimaeus became known as what, what we call the Jesus prayer. No one knows exactly when people started praying the Jesus prayer. They've been praying it for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. The best guess scholars have on praying the Jesus prayer was this moment, that the people that were around during that day saw blind man Bartimaeus receive his sight back because he cried out for mercy and they formed this prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. It became known as the Jesus prayer throughout what the church calls the dark ages. Much of what we understand to be recluse people running out and then those recluses started monasteries we have this whole movement in the church called the contemplative movement and it is founded on this moment that this prayer for mercy was so impactful that we have this book written it's about a monk who wants to know what paul means by praying incessant praying without ceasing in this book he travels around travels around he's asking everybody what does it mean to pray without ceasing and they'll tell him oh just walk the next three miles repeating the jesus prayer over and over again repeat the jesus prayer 15 times today repeat the jesus prayer 100 times over the next and he just he keeps preaching this till at the end hit the the position of his heart is one that is just praying his normal state of mind is prayer. Because of that moment, because of crying out for mercy, putting aside this desire to be the greatest, putting aside this desire to rule over and to be in charge, to putting aside this idea of I know who I am and I'm coming to Jesus and He has to help me fulfill who I think I am and he has to give me permission to be myself, and he has to give me permission to do what I want to do. He, my, all my prayers are about me getting what I want from him. And the response across history, a negative response, is when Jesus died on the cross, raised from the dead, somehow, some way, many, many followers of Jesus came to the conclusion that, oh good, now I can come to him and get whatever I want. And when I don't get what I want, I'm out. Because you died on the cross, you raised from the dead. If you could do that, you can give me, you can do for me, you can make me, you can. And that's not the response. Because three different times, the response was that. And Jesus ended with the proper response as one, a cry out for mercy. So however you're responding to Jesus today, I pray that whatever you need him to do for you, that that prayer is begun with a request for mercy and that you understand that as a person, as a human, that we all are in the position in need of mercy. And the final statement I have for you today is this. In a society that gives superiority and control, that craves superiority and control, we can bring positive change through self-denial and servitude. And you don't even have to be a Christian to do that. That's pretty simple, isn't it? To just look out across the world and go, man, Everybody's craving power and authority, wanting to be the greatest. I think I'll turn the tide and I think I'll help my neighbors by just serving. I think I'll help my family, help my children, help my spouse just by, by serving. See, you, you can do that. You can do that. But most importantly, it'll start, if you want to follow Jesus, it'll start with a request for him to have mercy on your soul. And however you need Jesus to move in your life today, I pray that it starts there. Amen? Amen.